Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. You're not going to believe this. Oh, oh my God. God. Five stars. Five and a half stars. Papa. My dad is my hero. Grandpa, are you ready? I love a good happy ending. Oh boy. Hey, hey, It's a phony baloney. And a tit for tatter. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. <laughs> Introducing Jeff Grant, the Hamisha priest. He started the world's first ministry serving the white-collared justice community. Jeff, welcome. Jeff Grant in the house. How are you? Great. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Oh my gosh. When I told my dad a little bit about your story, I got to tell you what he said. Hold on. I had to type it to myself. (laughs) He said he wanted to talk about how attorneys collude with each other and drag out cases and they don't really care who wins or loses or have the best interests of clients in mind. Would you agree with that? Are we being recorded yet? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wish I could show you the presentation that I'm making to the Delaware Bankers Association on the 19th because it's basically about that. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you talk about any of it? Well, sure. I mean, I, I wrote an article for Entrepreneur that was called Nine Things to Know When Hiring a White Collar Criminal Defense Lawyer. And a lot of it is about kind of cronyism and greed and neglect and things like that. I, I know it's not going to make me particularly popular with the white collar lawyer crowd, but here's the thing. I'm someone who went to prison for white collar crime. I've helped over 500 guys who've come back from prison or before they go to prison including Craig Stanley. Craig Stanley was one of my first ministries. And so one of the things that we have in common is that the criminal justice system is basically stacked against us. We think that it's because the prosecutors are stacked against us. You know, we think it's because the system is stacked against us. But really what it is, is that we are roadkill. And now we're lying on the side of the road and anything and anybody can come pick at the meat on our bones. So that can be anyone who stands to gain from our misfortune or from the mistakes we've made or from showing vulnerability at the wrong time to the wrong people. Does that mean that white collar lawyers are amongst them? Possible. Sometimes that's true, but that's true of any group of people. The thing is, is that with the white collar, with the white collar lawyers, there's a certain percentage of them that are very good, very thorough, very high paid. They're basically only available to people with a lot of money or corporations that are funding them. And then there's this massive amount of lawyers and people being prosecuted who everyone knows are not going to go to trial. They can't afford to go to trial. Their cases are going to plea. And when they plea out, these people are usually going to go to prison. Not always, but usually going to go to prison. So the question there is, as your father, as daddy kind of uh, put it, is if you already know what the outcome is going to be, what's the purpose of doing all the work? I'm not saying that that the work shouldn't be done. I'm saying is you have to know what the purpose is. You have to know what you're trying to accomplish. And if what you're trying to accomplish 
is to get the best sentence you can for the people who you represent, then how do you do that? What money has to be applied? How do you put together a plan to try to do that? Because you have to make a presentation to the prosecutor. You have to make a presentation to the judge. You have to make a presentation to the probation officer who's doing the pre-sentencing report. How do you do that? The answer is, is that you get the best experts you can. You've seen TV. You, you, you have forensic experts. You have forensic I've accountants. I've seen real life too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there you go. You have forensic accountants. You have uh, mitigation experts. You have investigators. You have maybe medical experts, depending upon the type of case or upon the defendant. And the question is, are the lawyers taking parts of their fees and allocating it to the experts that they need so that those experts can generate reports or testimony or affidavits or whatever form they're going to present it in so that the attorneys can use it to argue the best case for their clients. And unfortunately, all too often, the answer is the attorneys are not hiring these people because they don't want to share the money. So what do you get? What do you get for your money? In many cases, not all cases, and maybe not even in most cases, but in many cases, what defendants such as like I was, like Craig was, were getting suboptimum levels of representation. They're not doing what they should, they're supposed to do. So I think your father's question is very, it's right on the money. Because if a lawyer is not going to do what he or she should do, or they should do, I guess, in modern parlance, what they should do for the client, then who are they doing it for? The answer is kind of the underpinnings of, of what is wrong with our criminal justice system. Yeah, I'm, I'm willing to talk about that anytime. And there'll be 500 bankers and lawyers at the Delaware Trust Conference on October 19th, where I'll be speaking in front of. I know this will interest them because every one of them sitting in that room has some relationship to the trust community in Delaware and probably in other places as well. And so what that means is that someone has a trust, maybe they passed away and there's a trust. Now there's assets in the trust and all too often what's in that trust, the trust document itself has not been well drafted. It's drafted by hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of lawyers, some of whom are better than others, some of whom can write a trust agreement better than others. So now this banker is sitting there and he's got to try to interpret a document that may not be well drafted. And maybe he has his legal department, he has his compliance department, and they're scratching their heads trying to figure out what to do, but they're responsible for this money. And so the bankers and the regulators and the compliance department are telling them to do one thing, but the decedent or the, tr or the grantor's family is over here banging on the door saying, hey, we want our money. And what do you do if you're in the middle and you've got to make some decisions? The answer is nobody knows. That's the answer because it depends upon who the individual is. It depends upon how hard people are pulling or pushing. And so people wander into ethical mistakes. They want to please people. In their efforts to please everybody, they wind up pleasing nobody. So could somebody who's in that situation, responsible for other people's money, could they make a wrong decision and possibly come under scrutiny of a regulator, come under scrutiny of the law? We already know the answer is yes. So why would they be interested in a story like mine and, and people who have the kind of experience I have? And the answer is because one, you don't want to wind up like I did in prison. 
And two, there's very few people out there who are actually talking about the truth, what really, really happens, what it's like out there and how bad things can get and what I would have done differently, for example, had I known then what I know now. I understand there are people out there who are basically minding their own business, showing up to work, going home to their families at night, having dinner, watching the Flintstones on TV, whatever they're doing. And then they get a knock on the door from the FBI or a regulator who wants to know about those series of transactions. What do you mean? Uh, I was just doing my job. And the answer is, well, maybe you were, maybe you weren't, but you better know what to do right now because the FBI is at your door. So you better know what you've got to one, not say anything to the FBI. They're not your friend, right? How much TV do you have to watch to know that? And yet you can't imagine how many people think, well, I've done nothing wrong. Let me just tell them. Let me explain to them what I've done, not done wrong. Well, that's a spectacularly bad idea. Two, then what they do is once they're out of their immediate situation, let's say they've been arrested or not everyone who gets arrested by the FBI, uh, some people get to go home pretty quickly. I mean, it's not necessarily what you see on TV, but sometimes, you know, the perp walk, then they'll do anything to relieve the pain, relieve the anxiety, because all of a sudden this problem is looming large and they're in such trauma, such pain, that they start calling up friends there, or they'll call up their brother-in-law, or they'll call up their dentist, they'll call up anyone. I need a good lawyer. Someone will say, oh, I know the best lawyer. I, I know the best lawyer. You got to call this lawyer. And they call them and they have no idea if that's the best lawyer. They have no idea if that lawyer is right for that type of case. They have no idea if that lawyer is right for that courthouse. They have no idea if they will have a connection with that lawyer, what they should be looking for. But what they're willing to do, because they're in so much pain, is they're willing to write a check for almost everything they have, because someone says, I can make the pain stop. And then three months later, six months later, when the pain doesn't stop, in fact, maybe it gets worse, and they've taken all the resources and they've put it into a place that while they were in trauma, within days of having been, maybe the same day as having been arrested, they didn't have their faculties about them. Now they're taking a hard look at later and they're saying, wait a second, maybe that wasn't the right decision. And a lot of them can't make another decision because they've spent all their money on the first lawyer. So one of the things I'm, I'm here to tell people is that you don't have to make a decision. You get arrested. Most likely you're going to come home. There's going to be some time of confusion. There's going to be some time of all kinds of things going on. But no matter how fast you act, no matter what anyone says, no matter whatever, this whole situation is going to take a long time. It's going to take a long time. And there is no reason to rush into anything. Or I shouldn't say that. There are sometimes reasons you have to rush into things, but there are certainly no reason why you have to make a permanent commitment to a lawyer until you understand exactly who that lawyer is what his plan is, what your legal budget's going to be, how the money's going to be allocated, what resources have to be brought to bear, what the plan is. Any business you want to, before you, before you spend your money, what's the plan? What's the plan? Is there a business plan? What's the plan? And yet people will just, they just want to be free of the pain. What if you know you're being taken for a ride and like you don't agree with some of these 
miscellaneous charges that are coming your way? It all depends. If you're being prosecuted by the federal government, typically they've done their investigation before they arrest you. And so they have a pretty good idea of not only what you've done right or wrong, but they know where they want to go with it. In the state systems, not so much. They don't have the same kind of resources necessarily. And so, so sometimes the investigation is at its beginning when they are when they're arresting you. And then they're they're in the process of discovering getting all the all, all the documents. Do I think that the government gets it right? Do they necessarily charge people with the crimes that they've committed? I know it's a weird, it's a kind of a weird deal, you know. I mean, there's probably a hundred times, a thousand times the amount of people who get arrested thousand times the amount of actual crime out there. People are committing crimes all the time. Depends kind of how you define it and what the appetite is for a prosecutor to go after you or for an investigator to go after you. If they've arrested you, then have they arrested you for something you've actually done? Maybe, maybe not. Does it warrant a thorough investigation on your part? Well, here's the thing. If you accept that you're in trauma, okay, it's like being hit by a bus. You're in trauma you're probably your own worst witness. You can't trust your own memory. You can't trust your own tactile sense of the world. And yet you're being asked questions about something that might have happened two years ago on one particular day. So if I said to you, Rena, what happened to you on October 5th, 2019, two years ago today? You probably have no idea whatsoever. I called my grandma, it was her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Well, happy birthday, Grandma. Is that Daddy's mother? Yeah. Today, uh, she's 93. Oh, that's nice. But, you, but you, you, you understand the problem. The problem is it's very complicated. And I think that the opening question by your dad is, is, is a good question. Who do you trust? And the answer is, I don't know. Do you, should you trust anybody? You've just been hit by a bus. Should you trust anybody? Or should you methodically go through steps so that people... Even lawyers have to earn your trust. I don't know. To me, it just makes sense to follow some basic business slash human guidelines that anybody learns by the time they're in fifth grade. How do you find a good lawyer? Great question number two. Everybody deserves legal representation, right? But the reality is everybody has the right to legal representation, but generally the legal representation they can afford. So the question is, how do you find a great lawyer? is really half the question. It's how do you find a great lawyer that you can afford? Because if you have unlimited amounts of money, there's probably unlimited amounts of great lawyers available. Well, what do you do if you're an average person who gets, well, the average people don't get arrested, but I mean, the, the, the typical person who gets arrested for say a white collar crime, and they have a limited amount of money, a limited amount of budget, then they've got to find a lawyer who's going to work within that budget. That's a very tough thing to do because the great lawyers are in demand and the lawyers who may not be so great aren't going to tell you they're not great lawyers. If you're on your own, that's a tough thing to figure out. I'm a lawyer. Uh, you know, I got my law license back in May. So I'm one of the few people. Who, thank you. I've been one of the few people who've been to prison for white collar crime, who've gotten their law license back. I help clients navigate life in general and all of their legal issues and their complicated issues, uh, bankruptcies and divorces and real estate issues and partnership issues, all kinds of issues. And one of the issues is finding 
the right white collar defense attorney for them. And that's a process, part of which is how much they can afford to spend. There's other, a lot of other components to it as to the lawyer's background and where the lawyer was the lawyer, a former prosecutor, and was he a prosecutor in that federal district where the case is being prosecuted from? What's the track record of the lawyer? What's the track record of the prosecutor? What's the track record of the judge? These are all important things to know. It's like if you wanted to open up an ice cream stand, what are the questions you would ask? Is there another ice cream stand within a block of this, of where I'm thinking about opening the ice cream stand? How have other ice cream stands done in that neighborhood? Why aren't there more? What's the, there's a series of, of questions you would ask. The same thing is true in law or should be. Who are the players? What's their experience been? What am I trying to accomplish here? Ask hard questions. What would a difficult question be? I think the core question, the most difficult and the most difficult question is if I hire you, what do I get for my money? I love that. Okay. That's really what, good. Right. What do I get for my money? Because if the government's already com completed their investigation and they've already arrested me and they already know what they want, then tell me how if I spend X amount of money on you, tell me how I do better than where I am right now. And if someone can't explain the process and this is what we're going to do, and this is how we think you're going to get do better. And then what are the follow-up questions? Let's say you were going to a barber. Let's say you go to a hairstylist and the hairstylist said, oh, I'm the best hairstylist in the world. You pay me a hundred dollars. I'm going to give you the best, the best haircut in the world. What might you say to the haircut before you let them cut your hair? What you might say to them is, can you show me some photos of other people whose hair you cut? Well, that would be nice, right? If I'm going to give you this money, how do you handle the last guy, right? Like, how'd the last guy do? That's so on point because I just took my daughter and myself to get my hair dyed while we were in Florida. And two ladies came in and requested Jose for highlights. I was like, I'll take Jose. Exactly, right? <laughs> but it's not different, really. But people are afraid. You know, it's like they've... They've been arrested and they've lost their agency. They've lost their personal power. People are consumers. And what do we owe the consumer? I'm asked questions by people all the time. And you know what my favorite answer is? I have no idea. I don't That's know. That's a lawyer answer. No. <laughs> or, or I don't know. If I don't know, I'm not going to make something up. I'm going to say I don't know. There's a, an ego thing involved there, you know? And I'm not trying to besmirch an entire uh, industry of lawyers either. That's not my point. But I do think that in white collar law in particular, it's a rigged deck on behalf of the, of the government. It's very unlikely that the defendant can win because 98% of the cases play out. So you're going to get convicted of something 98% of the time or more. Wow. So therefore, what's the purpose of the lawyer? What is the goal? And if you can't agree upon it, then I don't know, maybe you should be interviewing some other lawyers. Okay, now I'm going to ask you the question that my son wanted to know. Oh, go for it. Okay, he wanted to know who is more hated in prison, lawyers or cops? I don't really answer questions that I don't know the answer to. If you get a group of white collar defendants sitting around who've, who've, who've all been sentenced to prison, pretty much they are belly aching about their lawyers. You know, what their lawyers did, what their lawyers said, what the lawyers told them what would happen, what they wound up with. In some ways, a lawyer's job is to manage their client's expectations. And just like, by the way, I, I believe it's a client's job to manage their professionals. An example of that is if you want a lawyer to work for you, 
do a good job for you, show up for you. I would say that the best way to do that is for the lawyer to want to do that. To try to get a lawyer to do something they don't want to do is very, very difficult. And so who does the lawyer want to help? They want to help people who they view as kind, compassionate, thoughtful, reasonable, people who are dedicated to changing themselves, to transforming, to being respectful. You know how many people yell at their lawyers? I've never seen where that's a good strategy if you're trying to get someone to help you, even if you're paying them. I love that point. Oh my God. I think there's a huge responsibility on the part of the clients to be active and to be smart and to be respectful. The same way there is responsibility for the lawyers to do the same thing. We're in this project together for a certain amount of time. And what we'd like is the best thing to happen, you would hope. Here's the crazy thing. Most people who are prosecuted for white collar crimes are business people on some of some sort. So the person I was giving this advice to was a salesman. The core of what he did for a living was sales. So I'm thinking, how do you not know how to handle somebody who you want to help you? This is what you did for a living, but they don't equate it. You know, it didn't like the pieces don't come together. It's that trauma that you mentioned. It's the trauma. And then the the lack of self-esteem and they're and, and, and they're they're coming from this this broken place. And our job as a ministry, our job as a, a support group, for example, is to help lift people up and, and restore them to out of the shame and uh, embarrassment and help them to, you know, walk erect again. Were you nice to your lawyer? You know, I was very nice to my lawyer. I knew my lawyer already. But here's the thing. I see all the wacky, crazy stuff that the clients, I have ministries who had lawyers and they would like send multiple emails a day to their lawyers. I'm sure their lawyers are like, for, like they don't even want to read them anymore. Like just stop for months and months and months. They're writing emails. Oh, I thought of this. Oh, I thought of that. Have you done this? Have you done that? And I tell them, you know, just chill out. You know what I mean? Like simmer down. We want to give the information to your lawyer, but you don't want to have them not read your emails. I'm not accusing anyone of anything, by the way. I'm just saying you want them to want to read their emails. Maybe they do read the emails to get reinstated to the bar. I needed documents that were in my lawyer's file from when I got prosecuted in 2004, 2005. So it's, you know, it's like 16 years ago, 17 years ago. So I called up my lawyer's office and I said, do you still have access to my files? And they said, yeah, we have them in storage. And I said, well, can you get them? I, there's some documents I need out of those files. And they said, sure. So there's like five boxes of documents that they put in a conference room. And I, and I, so I went to this conference room in my lawyer's office in Manhattan. And I sat there for three or four hours reading my file. I did every single thing that I tell people not to do. I didn't have a support group back then to rely upon. By the way, it's for anyone listening, the, the support group I'm referring to is we have a white collar support group that meets on Monday nights on Zoom. And uh, this coming Monday night, October 11th, will be our 278th meeting. That's, that's incredible. A, right. That's five and a half years of weekly meetings. That is such a commitment. It's the best part of my week. It's the best part of everybody's week. Because everybody's living in isolation. Their friends have left them. Their business associates have left them. They, their families may have been ostracizing them. Their lawyers have told them you can't talk to anybody. And then all of a sudden, they do a Google search and they see, oh my God, there's a white collar support group. They communicate with us. We send them a link. You should see their faces when they first come on. Oh my God. 
And so we've had people who are in the support group now. I think the long, Craig's one of the longest, actually, eight years. We show up for each other and ourselves, and especially for the new people who are just at the beginning of their journeys. So it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Do you miss the life that you once had? Parts of it. My life is much, much better now. But back then I was a addicted to prescription opioids. So I was I was high a lot of the time and I was 285 pounds and I was, you know, all kind of like opioid bloat. I would never refer to myself as a victim, but the category of victim of opioid crisis is kind of an accurate portrayal because I was prescribed opioids for over 10 years that I didn't need. And it was by a friend. I don't blame him for anything. You know, I don't blame him. It's my doing. I did it. But the point is, is that you know, what we see now in Purdue Pharma and all these, uh, these big pharma companies that are getting prosecuted, this is the reason why. And I was just one of them and I couldn't stop. And it drove my life into the ground. Ultimately, I, uh, I co-mingled attorney escrow funds. I committed a, a crime by, by misrepresenting facts on a uh, SBA uh, economic disaster loan application after 9-11. And would I have done any of that but for the 10 years of decay and drug addiction? Probably not. I mean, I, I had a very successful law firm. Do I miss any of that? No, I was living this wretched double life. But there, of course, there are parts of it. I still was a dad and I, and I still owned, you know, I owned a restaurant and I was a member of a school board and I had respect in the community and we could go on vacations and we lived above our means. But part of that was because our means kept decreasing as my drug use increased. My wife, my second wife, Lynn, stayed with me. I, we met in recovery and she stayed with me through all kinds of crazy stuff. I was 19 years sober this last August. That's amazing. So, so we met in recovery. That's and, so cool. Uh, so would I, would I trade a, a sober life of purpose and helping people and feeling good about myself? Would I trade it for what, for money? I don't think so. To really answer the question, you know, I'm a lawyer again now. I was in fear of, the, you know, I, it's something I wanted to happen. I worked towards, but the last time I was a lawyer, I almost killed myself. So that's all there. You know, it's hanging all the time, hanging out. I have to be super, super conservative, super careful, super prayerful, super understanding the reason why God put me here and gave me the second chance. And I respect it. And so that's what's led to a lot of other opportunities and to my peace of mind. So no, I wouldn't trade it. That's amazing. Why do you think God put you here? I think I'm here to live the best life possible and to help as many people as I can along the way. My view of service is basically making myself as vulnerable and open as I possibly can so that I can give other people agency and permission to be open and vulnerable as well. You know, this identification, that's the purpose of testimony. I was raised Jewish. I'm a Jew. After I came into recovery, after I tried to kill myself and I came into recovery and I met Lynn, we started going to shul on Friday nights and church on Sunday mornings. And believe me, back then I would have done anything. I was scared to death. I was newly sober. I had been, I was about to be arrested. I had committed crimes. I'd lost my law license. I would have done anything. I would have walked through fire. Whatever someone told me to do, I would do if it was going to keep me sober. But there was no question I had this, this spiritual awakening, mostly in, in recovery. But then later in my prison journey, because a lot of people find a certain spirituality when, when they're away in prison. 
I found a connection with uh, the New Testament and with Christianity. And I didn't see it as being inconsistent with being a Jew. You know, I'm, I'm not a Messianic Jew. I'm not a Jew for Jesus. I just was connected. And also because I'd been going to church and I realized like going to church and going to an Orthodox, I wasn't raised Orthodox Jew, but going to an Orthodox service and going to a Roman Catholic service are pretty much the same thing. But I was feeling this kind of connection. I decided what I wanted to do was serve better, especially people who are having criminal justice issues. I decided to go to seminary, whereas I guess I could have applied to, say, Jew Jewish Theological Seminary in Manhattan. I've been on a rabbi track. I didn't feel called to do that. I, said, I felt called to attend Union Theological Seminary, which is non-denominational, but Christian. But the people who go there are from all kinds of different backgrounds. In the course of doing that, I found this connection with Christianity and with Christ. To this day, I don't know what that means, by the way. But I became, uh, I was baptized. That kind of answers, in a way, the faith part of the question. But the minister part of the question is a professional, you know, it's an occupation. And so while faith and the ministry, parts of them overlap, it's like a double helix. You know, they're not identical. Not only did I find some extension of myself in my, my childhood and what I believe in in my faith journey, but then I wanted to be a professional. I actually wanted to become a reverend. And so I got a master's of divinity and ultimately I was, uh, I was ordained. I worked in churches and I started this ministry to serve white collar criminals and their families. And that's what I did along with some nonprofit work and things like that. I spend half my time working with the ministry, which is pro bono work. And then I spend the other half of my time being a lawyer, basically helping out people who have crisis situations, generally white collar, but not necessarily just. So I'm really able to help people in ways I could never do before. And I just feel so blessed to be able to do that. That is remarkable. Wow. You mentioned that it was kind of like an extension of your childhood. Yeah. Tell me about that. I was the smart kid who hung out in the parking lot, you know, so my friends were basically parking lot kids and the smart kids in the AP classes where I was going to, I was going to class. It's amazing. The kids in the parking lot don't want to be in the AP classes. The kids in the AP classes want to hang out with the kids in the parking lot. So for my group of friends, I was the guy they came to with problems. And I found that I wanted to be in a helping profession. I didn't know what that meant really, but from a very young age, my parents were splitting up and I became kind of the father role model in the family. And then amongst my friends, that was true. I wanted to be, and certainly when I, even when I started to become, I was a lawyer, when I started out, I wanted to help. The problem was, was that I didn't know what that meant. You know, I didn't, ha I didn't have firm, whatever I was building, the, the building I was building was on a cracked foundation. I was able to rekindle some of those, those, those things, those thoughts and those, those hopes I had for myself when I was young. And that's happened. You know, it's happened. I, I mean, I haven't felt proud of myself in a long, long time until recently. And despite all the things that have happened and all the things I've been able to accomplish throughout along the way, self-esteem is a very fragile thing. You know, it's very, very fragile. I would say that this is probably the first time in my life where I actually allow myself to feel valuable, to feel valued. Glory goes to God, you know, this is the gifts I've been given, you know, I, all I had to do is just make good decisions along the way.
That is so beautiful. Mm. I would love to know, like you said that you kind of had like an awakening in prison. Did you have conversations with God? Like what was that awakening? I've had conversations with God ever since I got sober. I was someone who put a lot of things before God. I put money before God. I put drugs before God. As it turns out, I put drugs and alcohol before everything, the love of my family, everything. It was that powerful. But from the moment I got sober, you know, I was on my knees crying. You know, I was, I would literally go to a recovery meeting and I would go early and set up the chairs. And then I would lie, I would go, it was in a church basement and I would go to the sanctuary and I would lie down on the altar and cry and scream to God. I didn't even know God I was screaming to. I didn't know anything. You know, I just knew that I was in such desperate need. By the time I got to prison, so it's four years later, because I went to prison almost four years after uh, I came into recovery. Not only was I having daily prayer meditation conversations with God, but I was seeing God's reflection in other people. And the people in prison are a pretty good place. If you want to see God's light reflected on in other people, prison's a pretty good place for that to happen. Because everyone there has been brought to their knees. Everybody there, there's not too much posing in prison, at least not on the spirit in the spiritual realm. I got to come face to face with who I was and the reflection of, of God. And some of it I didn't like. A lot of it I didn't like, but there was a star that was shining that I got to follow. And this and it basically said, look, commit your life to service and march out of this step by step slowly. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. The thing is, I don't think that I'm different than anyone else. I don't think there's anything special about me. I really don't. I think that the gift I've been given is to just keep at it and to devote myself 100% to benevolence, 100% to trying to lift up others. About six months before the end of my law firm and, and everything crashing down, I had this wealthy client. She was smart as a whip. And in fact, she was the United States contract bridge champion. So smart. My law firm was in a was in a kind of a swanky area just north of Manhattan. And there were a lot of wealthy people and a lot of smart people. She was smart. And she was sitting in my conference room and she said to me, Jeffrey, you have a huge future ahead of you. All you got to do is show up. And it kind of caught me right here because I already knew that I was going down. You know, I already knew that I was being investigated for financial improprieties. She didn't know. But I knew, and it was like, yeah, you know, all I had to do is like do good stuff and show up every day, use time and energy to my advantage, not to my disadvantage. I'm not going to do that again. My job is to just stay in it, is to show up every day, work as hard as I possibly can, but give the outcome over to God. Be someone who does things in earnest. You know, some of this I learned from Craig Stanley, by the way. It's he, funny that you just transitioned to that because I was thinking about in his book when he knew that the FBI was at his house and he had to leave his job. Well, the way I met Craig was shortly after that, one of his neighbors where he was living was in my recovery group about 10 years ahead of Craig on our journeys. And so this, this guy in my recovery group, so an alcoholic who know, knew Craig, called up Craig and said, I think you should meet this guy, Jeff Brandt. I think he could help you. And that's how we got together. So it's only from me having been so vulnerable and so open in my recovery group that, that this guy said, this is someone you should meet. Incredible. 
Yeah. Have you ever felt like you've overshared or are you just totally okay and know what you can share and what you can't? There are things I don't share because it's not appropriate. I'll rub them a little bit sometimes. I don't share other people's stuff. I mean, if somebody's come to me either as a lawyer or as a minister, I don't share any of their stuff. But I'm talking about I don't share my family's stuff. I mean, that's their stuff. For years, I did talk about my, my wife and my stepdaughter because they gave me permission to. For years, I did not share about my ex-wife or my two biological ch children because they didn't want me to. It's a little bit more fluid now. I don't lay claim to their stories. You know, uh, I only talk about my own. So there's a line of demarcation. I have one final question. You've been so generous with your time, but I no. am curious, like what has your experience been like with the Jewish community? Because I'm a double belonger now, because I'm a, I'm a Jew and, and a Christian. For the most part, I don't know. It's not like there's a head Jew out there somewhere who's, who's, who's making a decision as to whether or not I'm a good Jew or a bad Jew. I think my children were confused. They both were bat mitzvah. They both, you know, they're both Jews. My uh, my younger daughter married an Israeli an Israeli boy, and all of my grandchildren. I have four grandchildren. They're all growing up in some kind of Jewish religiosity. You know, they've gone to Hebrew school and things like that. They're all they're young, but they go to a Jewish preschool and things like that. I think my kids were confused. We're like a high holy days family. So what, what, what is this about? And in large part, I didn't really have an answer for them, you know, because it's deeply personal. It's not personal on the professional side, but on, but on faith, I think is, is something that is mysterious. And there's reasons why there are a lot of reasons why I, I migrated towards the church. Part of it is survival. I mean, let's face it, I, I, I joined AA because there was no place else to go. My decision to turn to Christianity was trying to make sense of these things that had happened in my life and trying to find a, an elegant path forward. And I'm not saying it's not in Judaism. That's not what I'm saying. I'm, what I'm saying is it just happened to be where I was at the time. And when the light hit me and I said, you know, I'm going to follow that light. And I've never regretted it, but I'm a Hamisher reverend. What can I tell you? And there's the title. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. It has been such a pleasure to connect with you. Is there anything that you would like to promote? I know you talked about your community. How can people support your community? Our website is prisonist.org. Prisonist like feminist. Lots of resources there for people with criminal justice problems, specifically white collar nonviolent crime issues, but a lot of other things too. I've done a lot of inner city work and, and violent crime work in my path. So that informed a lot of the work we do. So prisonist.org, certainly reach out to me. If you are suffering from a white collar justice issue or, or, or your friend, family member, colleague, client, contact us, join our support group on Monday nights. It's free and you'll meet a lot of people, good people who want to give of themselves Really, I don't believe that you need to pay for that information. I think that it's out there. What a gift it is to be in community with all these beautiful people. Like, stay tuned. I wrote an article for Entrepreneur this month that's doing great. Nine things to know when hiring a white collar lawyer. And a few other articles coming out. And I've been invited on a bunch of things that'll just play out. If you want more information, just look on the website. And then of course, there's the law, the law firm website too. And I'm not promoting the law. I'm not promoting the law firm here, but I am a lawyer and I, I want to put that out there. And that's grantlaw.com. I hope uh, anyone in need will call.
Would you like to ask my daddy anything? I cannot wait to hear what he has to say about this because he is going to have a lot to say about this. Well, you know, you know, the obvious question to ask your dad, I think, is to mirror the question he asked me from the outset. So, daddy, if you have a certain amount of mistrust for lawyers in the legal profession, what happened to you that caused that? Is that something that literally happened? Or is that something that is kind of a transference childhood trauma thing that's playing out? That's a dagger. <laughs> this was great. Thank you so much. I loved connecting with you. And I might surprise you on a Monday night for sure. Oh, that'd be fun. That'd be Have great. a beautiful night. Thank you so you much too. for sharing. Thank you. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. This is uh, an interesting story with Jeff Grant, who's an attorney and also who went awry. And as, as you know, I posed the question in the beginning of your interview, where a lawyer is certainly not above the law. And lawyers have, unfortunately, they're put in a position where people are in trouble. And a lot of lawyers just take advantage of those people. He asked me a question. Is it from something like my youth uh, that happened? Actually, I've been dealing with lawyers with labor cases with environmental cases, with, as you know, that went on, that environmental case went on for seven years, a lawsuit with my sisters over inheritance that went on for uh, three years. So when, when he says that you have to be in for the long ride, our justice system has a problem because it doesn't really search out truth. Send it to the jury for the truth, okay? Just tell all the whopping stories that you want and let the jury figure out what lies and what's truth. Britain, they have a, a justice system where both sets of lawyers seek out truth and try very hard to come up with what really happened and what's the an equitable solution. Even your judges, most of them are law lawyers also, are in that same game of where they don't want to see a winner and a loser. They want to find some type of compromise and where both sides lose. It's really hard to figure out what's right and wrong when you have your whole system not really seeking out what's right and wrong. And as stated already, the process can go on for so many years that the penalty or the price ends up being where the lawyers cost more than whatever the penalty might be, or the lawyers cost as much as whatever the argument or dispute is about. It's a very unjust system. He mentions also that what determines justice in this country is how much money you have as well to be able to defend yourself. And those that don't have any money, they, they, they might as well put their head between their legs and kiss their ass goodbye because the way the system is, is that, and especially if it's the government or prosecutors coming after you that represent the government, they don't even have a chance to win unless by some freakish accident that they can be cleared through DNA or where there's a, a witness on the scene that can be provided that the prosecution doesn't know about or is hidden. And even, even the police lie about what's really happened based on a point of view rather than what the real truth is. This is the fight that's going on in the politics now between Republicans and Democrats, where you have two complete opposite interpretations of what the truth is. We really have a, a polarized nation of half-truths who determines the reality. It's a very tough game. And yet, the justice system that we have, even though it's imperfect and terrible, as I just stated, and you got to remember, I went to law school also, so 
I studied a lot of different cases as well. And the Supreme Court have gotten a lot of the law wrong. And, and then it gets turned over by other cases later on. Too long to go over all of the different hypocrisies in our judicial system. But what's nice about Jeff is that after being addicted to opioids, after losing everything, that he wanted to redeem his name and be able to help other people that have had similar situations where to find, as he says, where I found the light, whether it was through Christianity or being Jewish, he was searching out God to come up with what his purpose really should be. And that purpose should be what all of us should do, is to be able to find a way of being able to be a shining light for others and helping others and being able to not just be monitored by how much money we can make or how much money we can make off of other people. It's, it would be nice if we can do things. Yes, we all want to make a living, but not where we take advantage of people when they're down and when they're in trouble. And as you know, from my own experience, even a, a lawyer that I thought understood what had happened and understood part of the environmental case, 20 years later, there was an incident again, and he wanted to charge me more money and prolong it, where I went up to Indianapolis and talked to them myself without a lawyer and ended up with no penalty and just had to work out some of the details and where I could scientifically prove that the possibility that I might have been charged with was nothing but false. Wasn't the truth and science matter? And I went up there and was able to defend myself. And he said something else that's very interesting is that a lot of lawyers, what they will tell you is that, oh, yes, I believe you and I can help you and we can help mitigate any damages or any problems and really try to get you the best solution. I can't guarantee you for sure that you'll win. And it ends up that what they do guarantee is that you're going to lose because whatever the penalty is, or whatever the problem is, they're going to cost more than whatever the situation is. And this has repeated itself with my experience over and over and over and over again, where it's sickening. Do you feel that you've shared things with authorities that maybe you shouldn't have? I'm trying to be very careful what I say, because everything can be twisted and used against you. You have to really be careful what you say. And not only that, you even got to be careful that someone isn't taping you secretively, because a lot of people are also trying to twist what you say, tape it, shut it off, turn it on, twist the thing around and manipulate it. Very hard to be too trusting when you're, you're dealing with authority or when you're dealing with people that potentially can be suing you. You've got to really watch what you say. And that's why a lot of people rather be careful what they say and keep it in writing so that you have some type of evidence to support whatever the task that we're talking about is. And even things in writing that are done by lawyers are twisted and hard to understand as well, where they're not flawless either. I can't believe how many times things have been written up by lawyers where they make just as many mistakes even in the writing. It's certainly not an exact science of the law, that's for sure. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 